um, first to say that uh, we'll be recording just um, the first part where I'm kind of sharing some thoughts about all this, and then during the open discussion we won't be taping. You know, as you know, we've made reference uh, during this retreat to the diversity initiative that IMS has really been committed to uh, for quite a few years now, for you know, five or six years. And I thought it might be both interesting and helpful just to give a little background, you know, a bit of a history of how that all emerged and <clears throat> why we think it's so important. So I came back from uh, the time in practice in India in 1974, and that was the summer that Naropa Institute uh, had their first summer session in Boulder, Colorado. And that was kind of like a Buddhist Woodstock. You know, it was uh, people from all over the country. It was kind of the first big gathering of people interested in Eastern religion and practice. And Trungpa Rinpoche uh, kind of hosted it. Naropa was his uh, creation. And Ramdas was also there, uh, you know, speaking more from the Hindu tradition. The, he was giving a course on the Bhagavad Gita. There were a couple of thousand people, you know, from all over the country, and it was this amazingly uh, exciting time. And I was teaching uh, the meditation session, sections of Ramdas's class because we had known each other in India. And there were many, there were, as I say, a couple of thousand people. And so a lot of people got introduced to Vipassana practice. And it was like catching the wave of interest. You know, there was just, the timing was perfect in, in terms of what was happening in this country. And it was really from that summer, 1974, that the whole spread of Vipassana and mindfulness practice happened. You know, from the people who were at that uh, summer summer session, uh, we would be invited just in a very ad hoc way to come lead a retreat, you know, in South Carolina and Wisconsin and California and Massachusetts, and and it just built, you know, very much from the ground up. It was a total grassroots uh, phenomenon, and it just, as we all know, it just took off. There was just so much interest. What was very striking about this was uh, that it was almost exclusively a white middle-class phenomena. Now, there were very few people of color uh, on these retreats. And what's so surprising in retrospect was surprising and shocking was how normal that felt. It didn't even occur to us that this was an issue or a problem, uh, which speaks in a way to uh, the whole, one of the big problems of race in this country. And the issues in this country, I think, are quite 
uh, unique to American history. And of course, a lot of you are from overseas, from Europe and Australia, where there are their own issues. But the issues here are very specific and very deep-rooted. And it really pointed to the fact that it's very possible to live in this country even though the country is so multicultural in a very segregated way. You know, we can live our whole life not having much interaction uh, on any level or on very limited levels with people of color. And I think that's one of the reasons why as we started teaching and, you know, having retreats, the question never even arose. We'd we just weren't thinking about it. So first, a word also about this term, people of color. Uh, because as we were talking about it last year at the end of the three-month course, there were a lot of just questions and issues came up because many people were not familiar with this term. Uh, especially people from overseas where it may not be uh, you know, a com- common terminology. But here it is the uh, preferred term uh, uh, that people of color use in describing uh, their experience. And this is all self-identified. Nobody's assigning anything. People identify uh, or can choose to identify you know, as a person of color quite independent of... Uh, the color or shade of one's skin. And so that's why it's not a question of looking at a person and saying, oh yes, this is a person of color. It's all how the person themselves thinks of themselves and identifies as themselves. Uh, And so the the abbreviation, as you probably know by now, is POC. Last year we were using this acronym POC, and a lot of people, and again, especially from overseas, had no idea what we were talking about, because it's it's not necessarily common terminology. Okay, that's just a little background to where we started. (coughs) Some years after we had begun teaching, again, it was very white, middle-class sangha, Uh, some friends uh, of ours who were quite engaged in social action. Uh, We had the idea to have kind of retreat, not an an intensive retreat, but a quasi-retreat for social activists, for people who are really kind of in the front lines, you know, of doing this work. Um, And many of these people were engaged with people of color who were also activists. And so we gathered quite a large group of people. Uh, There was a retreat here in Massachusetts. And the morning was spent in sharing the meditation, and the afternoon was a lot of discussion. there was a big revolt in the middle of this retreat. (laughs) 
And the revolt happened because even though with all the best intentions, it was a group of white folk who had set it up, who had organized it, who had laid out the schedule. So there was not, not any sense of kind of the sharing of the power, the decision-making power of how this was going to unfold. And again, it was just outside the range of what we were all aware of. It hadn't even occurred to us. You know, so in looking back now, as I say, it's kind of shocking that there was so much cluelessness, <laughs> but there was a lot. For me personally, something quite transformative happened at that retreat, even with the revolution, and things got, things got worked out uh, to some extent. You know, there were a lot of group discussions about, about the issues. But one of the things that happened was in, in some of the group discussions, uh, there was a very personal sharing uh, from different people, including many of the uh, activists of color, and African-American and Latina and, um, you know, from, from various ethnic backgrounds. And the stories were so moving to me. And it was really the first time in my life that I had been in a group, a mixed ethnic group, where people were sharing kind of their, some of their life stories and the issues and the problems in such a personal way. And it's just like, whoa, you know, there's whole areas of life experience that people were going through that I just had no idea of. You know? And so it was tremendously uh, heart opening for me. And the way the, these groups were set up, there would be, I forget what it's called, there's a group, uh, there's a group process term, I can't remember at the moment, you know, where there's a group of people sitting in the middle uh, and then people around just fishbowl. fishbowl. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and so part of that was set up so the, the people of color were sitting in the middle really sharing these quite uh, moving experiences. And then people were invited uh, to just sit around people who felt like they wanted to be allies. And again, this was a term completely unfamiliar with. And I went off to Asia before the, before the really big activist explosion in this country. I went just before the big civil rights movements. And uh, so I, I wasn't involved very much politically. You know, I'd spent almost 10 years in Asia. Uh, and so just the, all these concepts and were very unfamiliar to me. But in that retreat and hearing these stories quite uncharacteristically for me as uh, I thought of myself, I just, I felt, yeah, I want to be an ally, you know, to uh, people who are going through these experiences and 
So I just joined the group, and, you know, the surrounding group. After that, and because of that experience, I had the strong intention, or the intention of, arose to um, see what I could do more actively, and how I could engage more actively in this whole process. And it was just around that time that a few real pioneers in the Dharma scene uh, began organizing people of color retreats. Uh, and there were a few African Americans, Ralph Steele and George Mumford, and in New Mexico, Linda Velarde at Vallecitos, which was an environmental activist uh, center in the, in the wilderness. Um, and the opportunity came to teach, uh, to help teach a retreat for people of color. Uh, and I really, I had a lot of energy to do that. And it was a little scary. You know, I had no experience. And it was really going into kind of a realm. I didn't know what was going to happen and whether I'd really you know, be able to offer things or to help offer things in a way that was helpful. And, and this was a retreat for activists of color. <laughs> so there was some strong energy there, you know, and big issues. Uh, but I was, very, I was just very inspired to do it. And it went, uh, mostly it went really well. And I was just teaching, I wasn't trying to address the issues because I didn't know really anything about them. And I didn't understand them. So I was coming and just basically teaching the Dharma as straight Dharma practice. Uh, I was teaching with teachers of color and they, they more addressed you know, some of the particular issues. And so I did this for quite a number of years. I, I taught different <coughs> retreats for people of color. Um, at first, just around the country, and then uh, IMS started sponsoring them, and you know, we started having them here. And it's just very interesting. It's, this whole thing is just evolving and unfolding in such interesting ways. You know, for many white people, the white sangha, or at least some, uh, there was a lot of question, why should we have special retreats? You know, for people of color, isn't the Dharma just available for everybody? And this was... I think largely our thinking for many, many years, you know, we're open the center from our internal perspective. Everybody's welcome. You know, we're not making any, uh, there's no discrimination or just everybody's welcome to share the Dharma and to, to practice. But that's not the reality on the ground. And one of the reasons and all of this is a learning. And as I said, just didn't know, didn't understand any of this in the beginning. Uh, 
one of the issues that became very apparent very quickly is that the reason these retreats, the POC retreats, uh, were so important and valuable and a lot of interest, as soon as we started offering them, lots of people started coming. And it was very largely around the issue of safety. And again, this was just an idea, why would somebody not feel safe? You know, it's, it's, that's a huge issue. You know, when, especially given the history in this country, if there are two or three people of color coming to a retreat, you know, with a hundred white people, that is not very often, uh, that does not create a feeling of safety for them. And it's hard. Um, even something, and this again was a, a kind of a revelation. You know, we think, yeah, we're out in the country, Barry, it's, it's a real peaceful, quiet country place. People like to, you know, walk the loop. Many people of color, and maybe even some of you, you know, who are not used to kind of rural environment, but particularly for people of color here, just walking the loop may not feel safe. Because it often, in our country, was not safe and is not safe. You know, and just not knowing who's going to be driving up and, you know, be aggressive in one way or another. So it's just kind of learning about all this. It's seeing, yeah, our own, uh, our own reality, experience of reality in a particular environment is not necessarily the same experience uh, that other people are having. And so I began to see the importance of the safety created by these retreats for people of color. And not only the safety, that was a really big issue, but also the sense of, tremendous sense of uh, community, you know, that was formed. Um, and out of those retreats, you know, in different places around the country, then people of color sanghas started to develop, to develop and I know in, uh, in New York, the New York Insight, very strong POC Sangha, you know, that is uh, energizing that whole organization. And on the West Coast, uh, in, in the East Bay, in California, also very strong POC Sanghas. Uh, and so it's been very important, you know, to, for the development of this feeling of safety and of community and of Sangha. But even in teaching the POC retreats for many years and having all this develop, again, it's just been so interesting. I still was very unaware of 
the extent and the depth of the issues of racism. Like this is a huge, huge part of American history, you know, and, um, you know, with its roots in slavery for so many years. And I used to think, you know, I'd read about slavery and I would just think, yeah, that, that ended with the Civil War, you know, a hundred and so years ago. And it's kind of history without any inkling of the legacy of that and how the racism in so many ways, in so many levels, is just institutionalized in this country, you know, and people are living in this reality and it's so easy for white people to be oblivious. I'll just share a little story. One of the people on staff here is from Australia and she moved here and she got a green card and then she applied for citizenship. And she got the citizenship and she went to the ceremony. She said it was, it was actually quite moving, you know, lots of people, 800, 900 people, you know, in the ceremony from all over the world. Um, and she said the person giving the, you know, the, the little speech, welcome, welcoming all these people as U.S. citizens, uh, he asked, what's the best thing about becoming a U.S. citizen? You know, and people gave different answers. I don't know. You know, I can participate in the political process, or you know, there's this opportunity or that opportunity. And he said, "No. The best thing about becoming a U.S. citizen is you can stop thinking about immigration." And it just struck me. Yeah, that for people who are citizens, we don't have to worry about. The immigration department <laughs> coming and you know challenging one way or another, and I realize it is exactly what's. I, I just want to back up a minute. In the process of kind of all this learning, you know about racism and the effect of it, and both in society and large and in our Dharma world, a term that came up a lot which is a very charged term, uh, is white privilege. You know, and when we were first beginning to have these discussions and this term came up, white privilege, there was a whole range of reaction to that term because a lot of us, you know, may not feel particularly privileged. You know, we for whatever reason, you know, we all have our own struggles and problems and so it took a lot to kind of just, you know, see maybe an, that initial reactivity and just step back, okay, you know, what does this really mean in the way we live? And uh, one aspect of white privilege, and there are many, uh, but which became very apparent is that we don't have to think about race. 
you know, as I had not thought about it for maybe the first 60 years of my life. So isn't this amazing? I mean, to live in this country where the problem is so huge and has such vast ramifications and never have to think about it. That's an aspect of white privilege. Whereas for people of color, think about it every single day. You know, that, that's the disparity. And there are countless, countless examples you know, of this. And the more work we've been doing on this, it's like we're really educating ourselves about what all this is about. Um, I just read this one little article. Uh, two friends uh, just went into a department store and you know, one was a person of color, one was a wh- white person. And the white person, you know, they bought something uh, and then just threw away the receipt. And the person of color couldn't believe that they had thrown away the receipt. Because for a person of color, very often in the ordinary activity of going into a store and buying something, the store security may be following them. You know, and did you buy that? Where's the receipt? This is something we don't even think about. You know, and yet this is an ordinary reality for so many people and all the racial profiling and it goes on and on. You know, the level of um, discrimination, you know, that, that is still here. So one of the ways that IMS, just as an institution, you know, as we've just started to, to open to all this, you know, as a significant part of our cultural heritage, you know, that this is part of it, um, we realize that this whole issue of power sharing is, you know, who's making the decisions in the early years, earlier years, you know, we might have one person of color on the board. Yeah, we're really, we're diverse. (laughs) (laughs) And essentially nothing much changed until, you know, as we became more aware and more conscious, now, I don't know, we have five or six, seven, you know, a very large percentage of people on the board are people of color. And this is when things started to change in the institution because they were keeping the issue front and center because it's very easy for us for me, for many, to have it go to the back burner because we don't have to think about it. You know, and so, and this ties into, <laughs> this ties into a, a little other Dharma principle, which I think I mentioned sometime during the retreat. So it's a little sidebar. Um, you know, that 
11th century Korean Zen master Shinul. I think I described at one point his teachings. He called it sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful framework for the Dharma. <clears throat> There's a book of his teachings called Tracing Back the Radiance. And for those of you interested, it's, it's a very interesting book. One of his points is that in Dharma practice, we can have moments of sudden awakening to a different level of understanding, but that's not enough. It needs a gradual cultivation of that. Otherwise, as he said, the power of the hindrances are formidable and they quickly reassert themselves in the mind. So to have a moment of awakening is transformative, but it needs the gradual cultivation. I saw this same principle at work in this whole uh, effort you know, to understand diversity on many levels and to understand racism and the effect of it. It's not enough to have kind of a moment's recognition of it. It takes continual work you know, to continually bring it up uh, to the surface of our consciousness because it's easy to forget. It's very easy to forget because we don't have to deal with it. Uh, so it's been very helpful, you know, uh, having the board uh, be more inclusive and really undertaking uh, having an institutional commitment to this work. And so um, the board itself has undergone quite a few trainings in undoing racism. And the staff has, you know, uh, taking these trainings. We're really trying to educate ourselves about this. And this is one of the other big issues that comes up that again, we're learning, you know, very commonly, as people are beginning this work, you know, we'll say to, you know, various people of color who we're associating with, you know, well, tell me what I'm doing wrong, or, you know, help me understand. And of course, in some situations, that can happen, but that's really a trigger point because, and we've heard this from many people of color in, this, in these trainings, that it's not their responsibility to educate us. It's our responsibility, you know, to learn. And so just that, you know, there's so many nuances to this. This work has been tremendously enriching and difficult you know, in the beginning when we would have, you know, even just on the board level, this discussion, and we would have it at every meeting. There was time set aside for uh, talking about this. It was difficult. People were hesitant and not quite trusting one another on some, not on the superficial level, but just, you know, on some deeply conditioned level. These are very difficult issues to talk about. Uh, and, you know, 
as white people, we may feel, um, you know, hesitant, or we can make a mistake, or I'm going to say something wrong, or am I going to reveal some prejudice, you know, so many issues come up, you know, and for people of color in these discussions, sometimes, you know, things would be said or that really triggered deep, uh, deep responses. But it's been amazing and beautiful to watch the process over five or six years, you know, of doing this work consistently, you know, and keeping the topic alive. Um, the level of trust, it's, it's just grown immeasurably and the conversations have become so much easier and we can just speak about things. Even three or four years ago, I don't think I could be saying everything I just said. I would have felt too nervous, you know, and not, I don't know, this is, this is too delicate to whatever. And so I just appreciate the learning <coughs> that's taken place both personally and for us as an organization, just by addressing it and having it come up and talking about the issues. And uh, it makes it easier to talk about it and then easier to learn. And so everything gets more inclusive. And I think just as Dharma practitioners, you know, in the mission statement of IMS, I can't remember the exact wording, but it says, a refuge for all, you know, who want to free the heart from suffering. But the for all, is it really for all? You know, are we, are we creating an environment in so many different ways where all feel welcome? And of course, the diversity goes way beyond race. You know, this has been a big focus on this uh, because it's so prominent. But in doing this work, it also raises all the questions of diversity around so many other issues, you know, about sexual orientation, about gender identification, about economic status. I, there's many realms of diversity to really become aware of. Um, But doing the work, it's really beautiful and it just feels so important, you know, as uh, a sangha. Uh, to just become aware, you know, to become more aware and to see uh, how the Dharma in the West really can be inclusive. Uh, because, as you all know, the first noble truth is universal. Right? And, and kind of the promise of understanding and the promise of a greater freedom really needs to be accessible to all. I think that's all I want to say for the moment. Uh, so when we... <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.